Right, we're in Joshua 8 uh, today, but let me just start with this. An old poem goes like this. One ship sails east and another west by the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. One ship sails east, one another west by the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. As a young teenager, we used to have annual rallies in London for the FOY, often at St John's Wood in their old building. Hundreds used to gather. But the morning was always given to social activities. We often used to meet in London, go around somewhere, or very often for lunchtime we'd meet in, I think it was Hyde Park, and often go on the Serpentine. And in those days they had sailing dinghies. And surprisingly, let, let some of us teenagers take those out. And what I soon found out was that it was very easy going in one direction uh, with the wind. It was very easy going where everybody else was going. But it's when you wanted to get back the other end that was difficult. And it took, as you know, quite a bit of tacking and setting the sail to gradually make your way against the flow. And really, that is what that poem's saying, and it's very relevant to our Christian life. Uh, we daren't go with the prevailing wind. And each morning as we start the day, it's the set of our sail that counts. Now you might say, what's that got to do with Joshua 8? Well, hold that in the back of your mind till we get towards the end. I'm sure we all know many of these exciting historical stories in Joshua since childhood, particularly the story of Jericho. And as we come to these great accounts, it's very easy to just see them in isolation. But this evening, just let's start by, as it were, taking a drone up and just hovering over where we are so far. And just take this little section where the people before they crossed the Jordan re-covenanted to God, recommitted themselves to God through circumcision. Then there was, as they acted in obedience to God, the great victory at Jericho. And then, as they disobeyed God, went their own way, the great failure at Ai. And I can't but help seeing that so often typical of our Christian lives. One moment when we are walking in obedience to God, God is blessing us, blessing his word, and then we somehow get overconfident, go our own way, don't commit things to God in prayer, and things then go amiss. So I think we see a picture of, as we've looked at these chapters, a picture, overall picture of the life of a Christian or the life of the church in general. So we've seen that personal commitment, the great encouragement, the failure and punishment. And just pause there for a moment. It's always worth bearing in mind that when it comes to God's people, when punishment and discipline has to be exercised, it's not the leaders that do it. It's the whole church that's involved. It's the whole people who had to stone Achan. It wasn't Joshua or the leaders. The whole people had to be involved in that awful uh, discipline. And we always know in church life, if anything's going to cause difficulty in the church is when we have to come to the point of exercising discipline. But it's always the church that has to take the responsibility of exercising that discipline. So that whole failure, that humiliation at AI, must have had a huge impact on the people. 
And now we're going to take a brief overview at Joshua 8. Under four headings, and they're really key lessons as we go through this passage. They're not the only lessons. First of all, God may use different methods in achieving his purposes in the similar situations. And we've seen this in the Old Testament time and time again. Because God worked in one way in one situation, God's people often quite independently, without consulting God again, went off and did things in the same way and things went wrong. We must always bring every matter to the Lord for guidance. Secondly, there is an end end of God's patience with the wicked. There is an end of God's patience with the wicked. Thirdly, God is not unmindful of the material needs of his people. And fourthly, the word of God is central in setting our sails. So I think it would be helpful, I mean I can't go into great details this evening, so what we're going to do is just going to work through the passage. So from the God-given success at Jericho to the abject failure of Ai, the Israelites and we have learned some solemn lessons. In their pride, Israel only sent a small army to take Ai, but they were routed and 36 were killed. What a humiliation. The sin that caused the humiliation at Ai, and compounded no doubt by the lack of Joshua seeking guidance from the captain of the army, are lessons learned for now it seems. Sin has been dealt with by the people, and now the Lord appears to Joshua as the Israelites continue with the God-given task of claiming the God-given inheritance. In these verses, we see God's detailed instructions for the battle. We saw it at Jericho, and now we see God giving the detailed instructions for this battle. So we're just going to walk through the account with a few reflections as we go. So you'll probably find it helpful to just follow in the chapter, and we're just going to work straight through the chapter. It's a long chapter, and I think that's the best way for us to get some reflections as we go. So, Joshua 8, verse 1. And really can't do any better than actually just listen to the story being told under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Now we think that Ai was not a very big city, quite a small city compared with Jericho if it was a city as such. But here we see a necessary exhortation to Joshua. He had every reason, in a sense, humanly speaking, after the defeat at Ai, the defeat already here, to be worried, to be concerned. Would they get routed again? But God says to Joshua, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. So Joshua Remember who is the captain of the Lord's army. Verse 2. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. God is always, comment now, God is always a God of order. 
and gives detailed guidance on the strategy to be adopted. Joshua, an experienced military commander himself, needed to humbly accept God's detailed guidance. And again, in God's work, that's very easy for us, pastors, leaders, individual teachers, youth workers, children's workers, to think, we know how to do this. We've got all the skills. But always, in all this work, we have to come to God and humbly accept his help. Now a longer passage. So Joshua arose, and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valour and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lay in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us, as at the first, that we shall flee before them. For they will come out after us, to have drawn them from the city, for they will say, They are fleeing before us, as at the first. Therefore we will flee before them. Then you shall arise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be, when you have taken the city, that you shall set the city on fire, according to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do. See, I have commanded you. So the ambush is set. And Joshua gives very detailed instructions from God as to how exactly they would entice the people out of the city. What the response of the people of Ai would be is not mere conjecture here. God knows exactly what the reaction of the people of the city is going to be because he will put it into their hearts what to do. Verse 9 Joshua therefore sent the ambush out and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. Now actually Bethel and what they think is the old place where Ai was are very close And the country is just hilly country. So when you talk about valleys and hills, it's just hilly country. And there's not a great distance between Bethel and where they believe Ai was. So the ambush was going to be on the west side of Ai, between Bethel and Ai. And Joshua is going to go round to the north to attack. Or at least to draw them out. So let's just read that again. Joshua therefore sent the ambush out and they went to lie in ambush and stay between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. And Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley 
lay between them and AI. So let's just try and picture that in our minds. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in the ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now, I'm not going to get in, into any detailed debate here because the commentators are very mixed in their view as to whether there was one ambush or whether there were two ambushes. Because here it seems as though there were two ambushes. An ambush of 30,000 men and another ambush of 5,000. They may have had different functions. Well, we don't know. Needless to say, all we know is that these were detailed instructions from God and Joshua was obeying them. And it really doesn't detract from the lessons of the passage itself. But one interesting note here is the mention of Joshua going down under cover of night into the valley. We're not told why that was, but it reminds me a bit of Nehemiah going and sur surveying at night uh, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem when he returned. Um, and here we've got the commander going down on his own under the cover of night into the valley, which obviously lay between his army and AI. For what for? We're not told. But I think if we're involved with any Christian work, it was very likely for spiritual preparation. It may have even been to meet with the commander himself, because he was obviously in direct touch with the Lord, and the Lord was speaking to him personally. We have him meeting the commander before they attacked Jericho. So it could be that, or it may have just been a time of quiet reflection and waiting upon God. I remember in the early days of junior, doing junior FOY here, when I was a relatively young teenager, and sometimes on my own with the whole group, and had um, vandals in it like Michael Wayman. Um, <laughs> but uh, I often remember before the epilogue, and it was quite a challenger group, going out in the sideway, which was then open, and just looking up at the stars and praying for the Lord's help as I was going to bring the epilogue. And this is very much a similar situation, seeking the Lord's help and blessing as they were going to uh, go ahead with this God's plan for AI. So what huge anticipation that night. What was it like in the camp of the Israelites? What was it like in the ambush? What was it like inside AI? They weren't aware of the ambush, obviously, but they were aware now of these tents that had gone up on the other side of the valley. Now it happened, when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried, rose early, and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people, at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. 
So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, the Lord is still in charge. Stretch out the spear that is in your hand towards Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand towards the city, so that those in ambush, it shows you how close they were really, could see Joshua doing this, arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that. And the people, the Israelites, who had fled to the wilderness, turned back on the pursuers. And as I said before, one clear lesson from this section, as we just draw this first heading to a close, is that we can never assume that God's way will be the same in similar situations, how we deal with it. How God dealt with Jericho is very different to how you'd have the people deal with AI. And we always need to pray about every single matter, every single new challenge we face, about how the Lord would have us deal with it. So, point two. There is an end of God's patience with the wicked. A solemn heading this. There is an end of God's patience with the wicked. Verse 21. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, and they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. And the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass, when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. So you see it wasn't a particularly big place. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out his spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Once again we see every detail of this battle in God's hand, even the moment when the men in ambush are to arise. Carrying on, verse 27. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves according to the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones, that remains to this day. So we may correctly learn when we're walking in obedience to God that first, he will direct us. Secondly, he will provide for us. Thirdly, 
he will often appear for us in remarkable ways. However, this is a very sad account, very difficult account. Many Christians balk at these accounts. But it's important to note that these quite horrific accounts of slaughter and destruction is clearly Almighty God pouring out his wrath against persistent and appalling evil. It is not like Russia today, some human quest for power or revenge or territorial gain. This is God doing this. The Israelites are merely his agents. We don't need to go into detail now, but when we were looking at previous studies, we've considered the absolute evils that were going on in some of these cities, not least child sacrifice and awful evils. And God, cup of his wrath was full up against these cities. In Deuteronomy we read, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. In Leviticus 18. Now do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the lamb was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the lamb vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from my people. As I say, we may find these passages uncomfortable, but we must remember that our God, the God of the New Testament, is the God of Joshua. Wrath will be poured out on sin, either in Christ, for those who trust in him, or on every unbelieving individual. And how is God's wrath manifest today in our nation? We're told in the New Testament that one of God's judgments on persistent wickedness is that he will give individual men and women and nations up to their ungodly behaviour and its consequences. So we've seen God uses different methods. We have seen there is an end of God's patience with the wicked. And more briefly, God is not unmindful of the material needs of his people. In the previous chapter, we saw the outworking of the great evil of covetousness. And I would suggest that this is probably one of the greatest evils we have to contend with all our life. Uh, even ministers, I, I, I'm told, are often tempted to be covetous of larger churches or blessings that are being found in other places. That's endemic in our fallen nature. It was where the sin in the Garden of Eden started. Eve saw it was good. Achan saw these garments were very good. The sin of Eden grips all our hearts by nature. But the child of God, as he seeks to subdue his sinful heart, says with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. And I challenge myself, can I really say that? In Timothy we read, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. 
for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Both those are very challenging verses to us. If only Achan had obeyed God, he now could have had double what he stole. Dale Ralph Davis says, It is only as his people lose sight of his generosity, his provision, his goodness, that the cancer of covetousness consumes them, as we saw in the Garden of Eden. And fourthly, the word of God is central in setting of our sails. Now this this is why I've had to approach this chapter in this way. This last section of the chapter almost, you think, what's it doing here? You read through the narrative of the capture and the conquest of Ai, and then we come to this sudden change of storyline. So let's listen to it. Now Joshua (coughs) built an altar to the Lord of Israel in Mount Ebal, which was about 20 miles away from where this battle had taken place. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, Moses had said when they came into the land, they were to do this. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered it on it a burnt offering to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings, and there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Now what they reckon is the stones were covered with whitewash or a plaster, so it wasn't like God writing actually in the stone. This was actually written on the whitewash or whatever it was actually on the surface of the stone. They wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Now again, a little bit of debate. Was this just the Ten Commandments or was it all the laws that had been given to the Israelites? Now when you look in the extended version in Deuteronomy, some of the things, it's quite clear. It was more than just the Ten Commandments. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant, the stranger as well as he was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterwards he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were among them. So suddenly in the narrative, we are whisked away 20 miles to the north of Ai and see once again the people of Israel being reminded that they are God's covenant people, with all the blessings and obligations that are theirs. Before they entered the promised land in chapter 5, they were made to pause as God reminded them that they are his people. And subsequent events dramatically demonstrate the blessings of obedience and the curse of disobedience. Now at this historic site of Shechem, where God covenanted himself to his people, the people are reminded again of the law of God that is to be their guide. And if you want to study this further, there are two main passages in Deuteronomy where this is dealt with. I'm just going to read a brief summary. After the battles of Jericho and Ai, Joshua led the people to Mount Ebal and did all that God had commanded Moses. He gathered the people together to read the law. 
Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses the servants of the Lord had commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. With the children of Israel divided on the foothills of the mountains, the Levites stood in the valley between them and read the words of the law. The reading was thorough. Every word of every command that Moses had ever given was read to the entire assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. The formal reading of the law in the people's presence and with their participation represented a renewal of the covenant. The curses were read towards Mount Ebal as a warning to the Israelites in the promised land, a reminder that the Mosaic covenant was conditional. Built into the law were punishments for disobedience. Curses at Ebal were levelled against those who practised idolatry, dishonoured their parents, took advantage of the vulnerable, withheld justice, committed murder, took bribes, committed various sexual sins. After each curse, the people were all to say, Amen. This response showed the people heard, understood and agreed. You might like to look a little more at that. So we've seen in this long passage, and in a sense difficult passage to hold together, that God uses different methods, so we wait on him. There is an end of God's patience with the wicked. God is not unmindful of the material needs of his people. And finally, the word of God is central in setting our sails. And at the start of their campaign in taking the promised land, the word of God was going to be central. And if only Achan perhaps had been reminded of the sin of covetousness, he might not have committed the sin he did. One ship sails east, another west, by the self-same wind that blows. It is the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. Like the winds of the sea are the waves of time as we journey through life. It is the set of the soul that determines the goal and not the calm or the strife. So we ask ourselves tonight in God's presence, are my sails being set daily by God's word?